Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Dominic Piper in uh, Perth, Australia. Dominic is the editor of the Australian Mining Journal, Paydat, and the Gold Mining Journal. He has more than 20 years uh, as a journalist, the majority of which were in the resource sector, in which he has traveled globally and has uh, a, a fairly global outlook on uh, the subject of mining and things sustainable. Dominic, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you for having me, Sheila. That's wonderful. So I, I wanted to test your own knowledge uh, based on your conversations with investors and, and this whole thing of ESG. You know, what do we mean by impact uh, investing from a mining perspective? Well, I, I think, you, you know, when you think uh, traditionally about uh, investing in mining, it's, it's, it's all, and investing in general, I think, uh, financial investment, it's always been about one thing, and that's making a, a financial return on your investment, growing the investment, uh, receiving dividends, and, and making a profit on, on those investments. But I think uh, the, the more recent trend in the last 10 years is about uh, impact investment or eth- ethical investment which, you know, really it's defined by uh, looking for something more or greater than, than pure financial return. So you know, investors looking at companies or funds that uh, support or generate uh, not only a, a social or a, uh, environmental benefit, but a social or environmental benefit that is measurable, is tangible, and has a net benefit uh, either for, for wider society or I think in particular in, in the mining and, and extractives uh, scene, uh, a, t- a net tangible, measurable benefit for the host communities and the host governments in which these mining operations take place. So th- that's interesting. So it's re- really seeing uh, investing as beyond just the people who put money in the project and take their upfront risk and, and saying, well, you know, for, for this investment to be meaningful and to be relevant in today's world, we need to widen it. So how did we get here? What has happened in the world that has led to this mindset change, do you think? Well, you know, I think um, if we'd been having this, ten, this conversation 10 years ago, I think I'd have been very hesitant uh, <laughs> with, a, with a lot of my answers because, you know, for so long, the mining sector is, well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's been up there with uh, weapons manufacturers and tobacco companies, really, as, as one of the uh, uh, evil uh, corporates of the world. You know, we've seen so many environmental problems, social problems, um, governance problems, uh, bribery and corruption and so forth, with mining companies uh, operating right throughout the world, whether it's in, in developed economies or emerging economies. But I think in the last 10 years, we've seen a, um, some really incredible advances. I think mining companies, uh, in a, from a pragmatic sense, have realized that um, operating in an environmentally responsible, and it was certainly envi- the environmental movement, first of all, mining companies operating in an environmentally responsible way created a net benefit for them. And then more latterly, uh, operating in a, in a socially responsible way, whereby uh, communities, uh, host communities, and also wider communities will benefit from the investments that they're making and the projects that they're building. Um, I, I, it's really taken hold that sort of sense of, of, of being able to contribute to uh, 
to a community and to the local environment rather than simply that word that we've already used, extract, being extractive, being an exploitative industry. So really building something rather than taking something out of the ground has really began to gather force. Um, there's been a push on the investment side of things uh, from generalist investors who want to see transparency. They want to see ethical performance from their investments because if these are big, large funds, whether they're pension funds or um, uh, church-created funds, they want to see uh, positive social benefits and environmental benefits that their, their, their shareholders. So they therefore put pressure on their, the companies that they're investing in to, to deliver. And I think what we've seen in particular in the last five years, you could say five or six years, is that environmental and social ESG performance by mining companies actually becomes a lead indicator of their overall uh, performance, whether it's economic, financial or otherwise. So in the same way that a really good way to judge a mining company's operational capabilities is to look at their uh, safety record. Are they treating their employees safely? is usually a good indication as whether they're a good operational company. We're seeing investors now ranking companies using uh, social indicators, environmental indicators as a key ranking as to whether they're, they are performing both at the corporate level, but at the operational and, and project level. So uh, you've said a mouthful and, and I think uh, the, the recognition that uh, mining companies have transisted uh, over time is true. But I, I want to uh, take issue with you on the fact that somehow in terms of social performance or even uh, value delivery to communities, mining has been perhaps on the extreme end. Are you sure, Dominique, that it isn't simply a function of two things. One, that mining companies tend to operate in remote and therefore relatively, well, first uh, remote communities, but also in emerging markets where uh, poverty is very high and therefore they, 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 are, they are larger than life visible brands. The, mm. uh, the, the, the contrast tends to generate inherently disproportionate expectations uh, as compared, for instance, to your regular commercial bank, which you are not going to find in, in a small village, you're almost always going to find in a city. Are we sure that we're dealing with facts here, not optics, not legacy issues uh, that tend to dodge mining more so than uh, other less visible industries? Yeah, well, I think you're right. I mean, I mean, fundamentally, uh, you cannot move a mine. <laughs> the ore body exists where the where the ore body exists. Uh, geology of millions and billions of years has placed these economic deposits of gold or copper or diamonds or, or uh, coal or, or iron ore where they are. Geology doesn't respect boundaries or, or social uh, economic. Um, development. The, the mines are where they are. I remember, I, I'm here sitting in Western Australia, which is, uh, you, you know, for all intents and purposes, a, a highly developed jurisdiction. But it's also the world's largest mining jurisdiction. It produces uh, so much of this, this state's wealth, and it is an incredibly 
wealthy state per capita uh, is produced uh, from the mining industry and related industries. But I think you're right. Uh, where mining companies have tended to go in the last uh, 20 or 30 years is into emerging uh, jurisdictions, emerging economy jurisdictions. And if we look at the example of, of, of say, Africa or Latin America in particular, they are, uh, there is no other industry whereby they, they come so close to, to communities and particularly, as you say, uh, socially disadvantaged and economically disadvantaged communities. There's really nowhere else. As you say, a bank will place its commercial center, even if it is an emerging market, will place that uh, their offices in, in, the, in the capital city where there's infrastructure of some sort, where there's power, where there's roads, where there's access through uh, uh, ports and, and, and airports. But a mine, you know, it may be in, the, in a remote, I've, I've traveled to mines all over, all over the world and it may be in a remote part of Burkina Faso whereby there's no paved roads for, for hundreds of kilometers. But you, uh, a Western mining company has no choice in that if that's, if that's where the geology has taken them. That's, uh, that's where they'll end up. The challenge for them is how do they, when they turn up with their four-wheel drives and their shiny equipment, how do they um, balance the, the expectations of communities who see this enormous, uh, to their eyes, enormous wealth coming in uh, with a mining company's ability? I, I don't think you'll find a mining company that doesn't want to help a community, but at the same time, I don't think they want to be a replacement for, for government. They, you know, they would like to make a, a social impact and, and build hospitals and clinics and schools and provide uh, facilities. But I don't think they would want to replace the government in, a, in an area like that. They want to be able to enhance on what the government is already doing. Absolutely. So this is, I think we've, we've done some justice to the social aspect of ESGs. I, I wanted to see whether you think there is a link between ESG investing and uh, performance of uh, list, listed companies, their stock. And, and if so, what is the imagined relationship between you know, perception of ESG uh, compliance and stock performance? Yeah, well, I think this comes back to a point we, we were discussing earlier, really, that, that uh, maybe a decade ago, investors would say, well, well, you need to have an ESG policy and you need to have some sort of ESG framework or co corporate social responsibility or social license to operate or whatever it was at the time they were, they, the, the, the buzzwords were. But now I think investors are measuring companies' performance because as we've seen over the last 20 years, failure uh, on ESG uh, principles, so failure in environmental setting as we've seen, obviously, probably most dramatically uh, in Brazil with the Samarco um, burst uh, tailings dam incident and the horrific uh, outcomes that that produced. Uh, th these, these factors, if they're not dealt with correctly, will become huge uh, risks for the viability of a company. So if it's environmental disasters, they're going to lose their license. And we're, you know, we've seen BHP and Vale find significantly and lose lots of value because of, of the Samarco disaster. We're seeing in the news recently, uh, Glencore being fined nearly $1 billion US for their bribery and corruption uh, performance in, in emerging economies. We've seen uh, just this week, uh, a, a London mining company 
have um, assets taken off them um, by uh, by in, through international arbitration um, because of bribery and corruption uh, performance in in Guinea over INR tenements there. So. Uh, if you are not performing, with, uh, I think governments and international agencies are, are getting much better at identifying failures of, of bribery, uh, uh, of ESG failures, and are therefore uh, licensing, uh, legislating against them. So investors are seeing these as really high risk um, problems that they need to that need to need to be overcome if companies are going to be uh, long term performers. Yeah, we, we must, of course, pause and, and acknowledge that uh, in, in more than stocks, in, in some cases, like as you said, in Brazil, the besting of the dam because the tailing stamps were not essentially secured uh, led to a loss of human life, which is tragic. Mm. And, and, and then, of course, you, you do look at uh, the Rio incidents in Australia with uh, the... Um, uh, you know, sites. The Duke that, Caves. Yeah, yeah the Duke yes. Caves. I exactly. mean, that's a classic example. I think, Sheila, that's a classic example of um, a company thinking, uh, try, trying to negotiate, and they are changing social aspects. Uh, the Duke and Gorge Caves had evidence of, of human existence going back 60,000 years. So this is a remarkable uh, situation that's really changed. Uh, anthropologists' uh, understanding of, of human activity on the Australian continent uh, to a large extent. Um, now, uh, Rio Tinto had uh, permission from the state government to, to uh, uh, destroy the caves um, under, their, under their legislation, yet uh, perhaps they hadn't understood the full ramifications from an anthropological and, more importantly, from a cultural perspective of the First Nations people whose land uh, those caves were on and who, who, for whom those caves have been significant places along, uh, along tracks for, for tens of thousands of years. Now, they did the right thing uh, legally, but perhaps their social license should have been more aware of, of the impact that that would have culturally on, on their social license to operate. Yeah, I mean, I think what it teaches us also is that increasingly you can't just fall back on the latter of the law uh, that, you know, not only do uh, the governments themselves need to begin to put in place laws that transcend uh, mere legality, but engage also morality and, and, and other social uh, dimension and that where governments and laws fail it then becomes incumbent upon those who manage risk and those who manage relations. And I guess with Rio, somebody failed to perceive that risk, uh, the, the, the limited risk to the legal space, but, but didn't look at uh, the social, ethical and other, if you wish, uh, space. But I, I, I wanna move on, if I may, uh, Dominique, to the aspect of, geopolitics of decarbonization. So the way I see the geopolitics of decarbonization now is, is that um, to the extent that minerals, some minerals are center stage, uh, there's going to be pressure to extract these minerals and find them and find them quickly. How do we do that, do you think, with while staying by and large 
within the parameters of the framework of ESGs today? Is, is, there, is there even a relationship on, or am I pushing things a little too far? Yeah, I think this is a really uh, fascinating area and a really challenging area um, for the resources sector globally. Um, uh, as, as we said earlier, you know, mining has a, has a traditional reputation of, of, of being one of the bad boys of, of the corporate world in extracting and creating greenhouse gas emissions and, and contributing to those emissions, whether through uh, the extraction of coal or, or the use of, of, of uh, global uh, greenhouse gas gases uh, in, the, in the processing of, of metals and, and the production of metals. But we really stand at a, a, a turning point, I think, for the industry in that this new, uh, this new generation of, of critical raw materials, whether it's lithium or graphite or nickel or the rare earths, these have an opportunity, miners have an opportunity to create a net benefit uh, to the world and, and, and really uh, the world needs these metals to deliver um, on its decarbonisation goals. You know, um, a, a wind turbine that produces renewable energy needs five tonnes of copper in it. An uh, uh, electric vehicle, a Tesla, has 20, or more than 20 kilos of nickel in it as well as, as, well as uh, vast amounts of lithium and rare earths for the magnets that it uses. So a decarbonized world is just simply not going to be possible without more metal supply. The question is, particularly if you look at a, a commodity like copper, uh, copper has, has been mined extensively for, for thousands of years. There's not really been many major discover, new discoveries of copper deposits in the last 30 years. So the existing deposits are going deeper. They're becoming lower grade which means the use of more power, means the use of more energy, which means the use of uh, the emission of more greenhouse gases, the use of more water to extract the same amount of copper. So we have to ask the question of how can we balance the carbon emissions that go, come from uh, extracting these materials against the, net, the benefits that they bring in their final finished product. And I think... Um, there's also a larger geopolitical dimension as well. In that, if you look at, I, I listened to a, a podcast nearly as eminent as, as your own, Sheila's, a couple of months ago <laughs> that described the. Um, uh, it was a history podcast, but uh, uh, the the author who was on that day, the historian who was on that day, has just written a book about uh, the history that of the last two hundred years, global history, uh, from the prism of oil. And, and and once you start thinking about that, it's very hard not to think about. The geopolitical context without the thought of oil and how oil is, has framed geopolitics for, for nearly 200 years. We're, perhaps we're coming to the end of that period now and the next generation, uh, the next 100 years or 200 years will be framed around the geopolitics of, of critical minerals. So we're already seeing at the moment when it comes to lithium, which is obviously a key component of electric vehicles, uh, more than 90% of refined lithium that goes into, into the batteries uh, of, of electric vehicles and of our phones and computers is refined in China, no matter where it comes from in the world. More than 85% of the world's rare earths, which are vital in uh, renewable energy, solar and uh, wind, and uh, the super magnets that are used in electric vehicles as well, uh, and as well as a lot of consumer goods like um, TVs and so on, and mobile phones as well, 
more than 85% of that is refined product that comes through China. And I think um, the crises of the last couple of years, the supply chain disruption of COVID, and now uh, the war in Ukraine, and the geopolitical tensions that have come from that has sort of uh, brought into sharp relief the reliance the world has, and particularly the Western world has, on China for these, pro for these vital products. So the US, uh, first under President Trump, but more specifically under President Biden, has, has revised its critical minerals uh, list and strategy and is now calling for uh, domestic supply of all critical minerals it requires. Uh, the EU is demanding that it has local sources of critical minerals such as lithium and nickel and, and graphite and vanadium uh, by 2040. Um, Japan, Korea, the UK have all got, India now, have all got uh, critical minerals policies at a, a national level that requires them to find alternative sources uh, of, of these, these minerals. Uh, outside of China, so, to, so their reliance upon uh, China to produce these these finished products is lessened. So I think what you're going to see, and and again, if you look at the emerging world context and the African continent in particular, uh, and and South America actually for that matter, South America is home to some of the largest lithium reserves. Africa, we're even not sure yet. There hasn't been a lot of. Uh, exploration for lithium in Africa, but it's emerging. We're seeing it in the Congo, where there's uh, a couple of huge lithium deposits. We're seeing it in West Africa and Ghana. There's uh, a London-listed company, Atlantic Lithium, developing a, a lithium project there. Obviously, the copper belts of uh, Zambia and DRC, and even the Kalahari copper belt in Botswana and, and Namibia are becoming uh, uh, of huge interest to international groups. So I think you're going to see a, a new rush for minerals right across uh, the emerging markets. And, and it'll, be, it'll be for those key materials and not only the mining of them, but where they are processed. And perhaps this is a, for the first time in history, there's an opportunity for uh, African countries, for instance, to, to participate fully in that value addition and beneficiation. Because if, if you think about how we, um, if we're trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, it's much better to be shipping and exporting a final product from near the mine rather than shipping concentrates all over the world. Hmm. So, it, I mean, everything you said is, is correct, especially the um, major drive strategically by the United States and uh, Europe. Eu Europe was, as you know, uh, much quicker off the mark, Europe has always been mindful through its critical mineral strategy that, you know, their industries will not succeed unless they can get their hands on uh, raw materials. But I wonder whether this new recognition that decarbonization will not happen without access to critical minerals, do you think it might in some way uh, compromise the ESG drive, especially the environmental aspect uh, in that governments may be more expedient because they may see the geopolitics of over-dependency on China as something that cannot be compromised uh, in the short term and that maybe there may be a bit of cutting of corners where the United States didn't want to mine uh, anything uh, and now all of a sudden they're going to mine. Are we seeing 
a, a level of compromise there? Uh, it, 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 may, it may well be the government's think uh, uh, of that, but uh, uh, I think as we've seen so often in 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 uh, increasingly in the, in the two thousands that other stakeholders are moving much quicker than governments are on these issues. And uh, the reason I say that is that for the first time, talking to mining companies here and, and the interest in Australia as well, the interest they're, they're, they're fielding from uh, major car manufacturers, consumers of these products, which is the first time it's ever happened, that the that, that major car manufacturers, whether it's General Motors or Ford or Tesla, or Hyundai, or the major uh, Japanese and Korean um, car manufacturers and conglomerates, they are coming to, uh, uh, in, this, in this instance, Australian miners, uh, looking for product. But in actual fact, rather than looking to cut corners and hoping they can um, push aside environmental or, so or social concerns in order to secure that supply, they are placing more demands on their suppliers, on the miners, to ensure transparency and traceability throughout that supply chain because their own consumers are putting so much pressure on them to ensure that their vehicles, their end products are completely ethical. And, you know, we live in an age where traceability, you can have a blockchain technology which will allow traceability uh, essentially from mine all the way through to the battery in your in your Tesla, and uh, you know this is ethical consumerism as well. Uh, you know, people who are buying an electric vehicle, for the most part at the moment, are buying it because they want it to be good for the uh, they want to contribute a net positive to the environment. And so, uh, these major car manufacturers are, are insisting on traceability and uh, transparency through their supply chain. Uh, and so I don't I don't see a way that that, that that miners will be able to cook, even if governments allow them drop the green tape or drop the red tape to allow them to expedite projects. I don't think their consumers and the end consumers will allow that to happen. And it's not just environmental. We see um, cobalt is at the moment is a key ingredient in the battery mix of, of lithium ion batteries. But because of questions of traceability, uh, obviously DR Congo is, a, is a, um, a huge supplier of cobalt. But there is questions about the ethical nature of a lot of the production there. There is illegal and semi-legal production. There is questions over uh, modern slavery and human rights and child uh, labor there and what the f uh, funding of, of arms and so forth. So you're seeing the major car manufacturers looking for new battery chemistries to lessen their reliance upon things like cobalt so that so that the ethical nature of their supply chain is secure so i think it, it will be a case of governments moving with uh, economics and, and with the trend of investment and of consumerism rather than the other way around and i think um we will see this more and more as, as millennials and the subsequent generations insist on their consumer choices, their investment choices, making a, a, a difference to the world. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, my sense is that you're right because uh, we're in, we are talking now about ESGs. 
coming as I do from the uh, mining background, which a huge part of which was luxury commodity, we found out before the advent of ESGs, Dominique, that actually consumers are not only willing to indulge in luxury, they are more willing to indulge in luxury if they think the product they buy makes a positive difference elsewhere. So, so the feel good factor from a consumer perspective, quite apart from ethics, is enhanced when people can say, I know this product did not uh, come by because of child labor. I know that if I pay a premium, the money will go back and the community will be better off. And I think more than regulation, the future sits in that space of an informed consumer, one who is making an informed choice because they are driven by a sense of what, uh, if you wish, economic justice uh, looks like. So my sense is that you're right, that uh, the train has left the station. It's no longer going to be about what the government say. And I think the, the case in point of the caves in Australia speak to that. You know, the legal actions were, were very clear and above board, but they were not morally sound. And so you, you, you had a backlash. And, and my sense is that that is where, where, where the future lies. And I think that is what is going to drive not just investment, but also uh, on the uh, end of that scale, consumption. So, I mean, this, uh, uh, you know, the, the accountability then, are you suggesting that when we think about who's accountable for making the right choices for investing, is it the uh, people with the money? Is it the companies themselves? You know, this impact investing, who decides uh, what the right choice is? Uh, I, I thought you may ask me this question, and I, I, I'm not sure that I have the answer. I think, um, you, you, you know, because I, I think when it comes to the mining sector, it, it, it comes back to who is providing the money, because even the largest miners will very rarely fund new developments from their own cash flow, from their own pocket. That's they will true. generally look, look to institutional, institutional investors and banks to provide both equity and, and, and debt finance to, to um, fund, their, fund their developments. Now, the, the legal ramifications, you will know much better than I because you have been on both sides of that equation on many occasions. Um, but I, I, I think uh, accountability, um, we're seeing increasingly executives uh, being held responsible, even again, as, as you say, even if it's not at the legal level, but at the um, performance level, we've seen several executives lose their uh, rather high paid roles because of failures in ESG compliance. Mm. Um, we have, but we haven't seen banks or large institutional investors take responsibility for their investment in that company. We've seen them remove investment as a punishment, but we haven't seen them take responsibility for that. So maybe they're, they're, you know, by their very nature, they can avoid that responsibility. But I think it can only, uh, it can only fall down to the companies and the, and the executives uh, who are responsible for for those operations? I mean, any any uh, any company is can you know is only run by the board of directors with the chairman at, at the head of that. Um, that that's ultimately 
legally is is the governance issues is is their responsibility to take to uh, ensure that those ESG principles are, are maintained. And I think it's really interesting for companies who aren't the largest companies in the world. They're not BHP or, or Rio Tinto or, or Glencore or Vale who can afford to um, employ vast armies of sustainability experts and ESG experts and reporting experts who can produce big glossy uh, sustainability reports that can tick all of the requisite boxes and answer all of the requisite questions for proxy advisors and for institutional investors in the right, correct way. If you're a smaller company, you may be, your impact on the ground socially and environmentally may be just as dramatic and just as impressive. But if you're a, a smaller gold mining company that's, you know, market cap is $1 billion, while still a lot of money, you're probably every person in your company is working to, to, to either earn that money through, through the operation or, or to ensure your ESG performance is strong on the ground rather than ensuring that your ESG performance is, is uh, reported correctly and reported in a way that, that Western ESG experts like. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, you, you make an important point that ultimately the back stops with the board. Uh, and, and, and they are the ones that are seen to be making those choices. Let's talk about the tools. What, what do we know about the tools that are used uh, to assess uh, ESG impact investing? Uh, how robust are they? Uh, how uh, founded are they? And, and, and how resilient uh, are they, these, these tools? Uh, I think, uh, again, for the uh, larger organizations, I think uh, these tools are very effective in many ways because they've helped develop them. If, if we look at the mining sector, we look at the International Council of Mining and Metals, um, they've developed their, their sustainable mining development goals. And, and they've, you know, they're, they're, they're fantastic motherhood statements and, and and, you know, uh, for the majors to, to be principled enough to stick to them, I think will result in net environmental and, and social benefits for the communities and other stakeholders in which they operate. But again, I go back to my point about smaller companies. It's very hard for a smaller company to ensure that they're meeting all of those uh, ICMM goals or the World Goal Council goals. Uh, can they ensure that they can meet them? Of course, and, and, and you know, you've been intimately involved in developing uh, the African Union's uh, African Mining Vision, uh, and obviously you, you, you played a, you know, you were you were directly uh, involved with the Kimberley process, which has been so successful for the diamond sector. But I, I think that they are fit for purpose for larger organisations. But so often in emerging uh, jurisdictions. We, we see much smaller companies operating in these jurisdictions. And they're the, they're the companies who really set the tone. They're the, they're the, the vanguard. They're the uh, prospectors, if you like, um, who, who move into these new uh, terrains and, and, and are the first to engage with communities who've never seen mining before. So I, I do think there's a big gap in the sustainability reporting frameworks and how, uh, how they reflect what mining, smaller mining companies are doing on the ground. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you should bring the difference between the, the major uh, 
mining companies and uh, the juniors. Uh, because of course, mo most of us forget that a huge part of the mining landscape is really junior miners. And, and, and many of them also listed in uh, you know, the, the uh, Australia stock market, for instance, is flush with those. So, so is the Canadian and the Irish and the London. Uh, but very often you don't hear much about how they operate. But also the point you make, which I think is important is that, you know, this reporting is not only onerous, but it also has skills and resource implications. And that while the larger companies may be able to generate that with relative ease, it might not be the same for the other uh, companies. Now, I mean, just uh, hmm, the, the standards, we know now that though ESG as a principle and the component parts are something that is now accepted universally, we are still struggling nevertheless with um, standardizing ways of measuring. How problematic is that, that we haven't really achieved a, a level of success in which the standards for assessing and recording are the same? Yeah, I think it is a real difficulty. And again, going back to the inherent nature of, of the mining sector in that the, uh, you see uh, companies from Australia or Canada or the UK, as you, as you rightly say, operating in very different environments. And, and, and I think culturally, if, you, if you're looking at the expectations of different shareholder, uh, stakeholders, I think the cultural differences are so, um, are so crucial. I'll give you an example. Uh, we held a, a, a panel discussion on this very topic here in Perth with a number of Australian uh, miners uh, who operate in Africa. And a question was put to the panelists about um, gender diversity on, on executive teams and on the boards, which is obviously a, a huge issue, particularly if the mining sector in Australia has got a very poor record for gender diversity uh, in management and an executive level and even at operational management level. Um, and it's trying to rectify that. It's a, it, we talked to about 18% female participation now, which is still very poor, but uh, it's much improved in the last 10 years. Uh, these mining executives were asked um, about uh, their, 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 ES, their, their cultural diversity or gender diversity performance on the ground in this West Africa, a West African country. And the answer was simply culturally on the ground, that is not a priority for our company and we're getting marked down in our reporting and the sets of standards that, that they have to adhere to to meet Western uh, companies, expect, uh, Western investors' expectations. They're getting marked down for it. But on the ground in West Africa, it's simply not possible. And culturally, it's not uh, aligned with other stakeholders to have gender diversity within, within a mine sites management team. Now, uh, the reasons for that and, and the, the rights and wrongs of that are, are, are a different question than that. I'm, I'm not intimate with the, the different cultural aspects of, of it in, in the particular countries, but I can understand that there's different viewpoints and uh, cultural expectations, which simply can't be aligned. Yeah, that's interesting because I have been struggling with this notion of uh, the setting of the standards themselves, the extent to which uh, when we look at the ESG standards, we are looking at them with the lens of the investor and the consumer, for instance, 
in the developed world versus the community in the emerging market world and how we, we strike that balance. And, and what you're saying is not only do you have to struggle with that, you also have to struggle with just the various companies, the, the environment in which they, they operate and the expectations on, on them on what is socially correct. It's, it's not universal. So, so I guess when we think about the, the uh, you know, impact and ESG investing assessment tools, we have to strike a balance. We probably must go back to the 80-20% rule where the 80% is the universal and the 20% is discretional and very uh, localized. But here's my last question. It seems to me we've come full circle. So we, we always, uh, well, certainly from my uh, life uh, in the mining industry perspective, we always had uh, the environmental impact assessment which was supposed to essentially create a baseline for what was physically and socially correct and, and economically sound. And then we would put a, a, an environmental uh, management plan to mitigate what was perceived to be risk and to uphold what was perceived to be the right thing to do. Why is that not enough? Why? Uh, have those tools been found wanting to the level that we now have the ESG? Uh, well, I'm glad you let you save the hardest question to last. That's uh, that's what I do as a good journalist as well, Sheila. I think, um, you know, I think the past decade and, and we go back to those things that we mentioned earlier on, some Marco, Duke and uh, Gorge Caves and so forth. I think really the answer lies in in those incidents that those in fact those traditional frameworks and and more modes of assessment have really uh, have, have fallen in 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 the last decade into a box ticking exercise and a, and a compliance exercise rather than than delivering something that um companies can strive to and that other stakeholders can hold companies accountable to it's very easy to, act, you know, once you understand those sorts of guidelines and, and, and assessments, uh, you, you can bring in experts to, to um, answer those questions effectively without having to change your habits uh, too onerously, if, if you like, and, and you can find ways to, to um, uh, muddy the waters, if you like, quite literally, I suppose, sometimes. Um, but I think... Um, what we're seeing in the last decade is is that those assessments and and what you're assessing has changed. I mean, when you know when you when you were participating in those environmental assessments, I'm sure uh, greenhouse gas emissions were there, but they weren't. You weren't talking about scope one, two, and three emissions and how your suppliers' uh, emissions were were impacting on your own carbon footprint and what you were doing to reduce your carbon footprint rather than just reporting on them. And similarly, from a social aspect, I think, uh, you know, it was only a decade or so ago that reporting about clinics and, and school buildings and exercise books was enough. But now uh, we were both in Cape Town for the mining in Darba recently. And I think the overwhelming sense there was uh, a social assessment also has to include the enterprise opportunities and the upskilling opportunities that a mining operation can have. What's going to be left there after 
the mining operation is finished, how is it going to be, be that community, that environment going to be better than the in a better shape than what it was what it was founded? And I think as we talked about these new frameworks before and these new reporting standards, we get to know whether they they are effective or not because we won't see the outcomes of them until twenty or thirty years from now. Hmm, that's fantastic. Well. That's uh, a good way to end uh, the interview, uh, Dominique. Thank you very much for indulging the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. This has been invaluable. No, thank you. And I, I must say, I'm, 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 a very, I'm very proud to uh, report and participate in the mining industry. I think, you know, there's very few industries, not another industry in the world that has a development story to tell. That, that mining has in particularly in the emerging economies you know i've seen so many great examples of it uh throughout the world that i think it's something we should be very proud that when done well it can contribute to society in so many ways